me for the reading of God's Word once again. And our scripture reading is taken from 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And we'll be reading verses 1 through 22. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1 through 22. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the firstfruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. And as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the word of the Lord. You may all have a seat. As you do, would you bow with me for a word of prayer? Lord Jesus, as we celebrate this special weekend, remembering your death and your resurrection, what amazing truth from your word for us to consider and meditate upon. We marvel at the fact that in your life, in your death, in your burial and resurrection, you fulfilled all that was necessary for our salvation and all that you promised to do in accordance with the scriptures. We are humbled 
and thankful for what you did on our behalf. And we rest our hope entirely on you, our crucified and risen Savior. Because of your resurrection, we can face each day knowing that we are no longer in our sins, but that we have been set free from its power and its penalty. Because of your resurrection, we can live lives redeemed for your glory here on earth, anticipating that day when we will be reunited with you in a similar resurrection as death ushers us into eternal life with you. While we take joy in the promise of your word, at the same time we recognize that the curse of sin is real. In our broken world, in our broken lives, there is much pain and suffering, injustice and sorrow. We take comfort in the fact that you endured at the hands of sinful men such much more than any one of us will ever experience. And yet, you did not sin. In the end, you did not regard your life too precious to sacrifice, but willingly offered it up for us. On that cross, you were made to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in you we might become the righteousness of God. In light of this gospel truth, we confess our daily need to be forgiven. There is not a day that goes by where we are not in need of your grace and mercy. And so we are thankful, we are grateful that your grace abounds and that your mercies are new every morning. Would you forgive us, cleanse us, and make us holy like yourself, set apart for your purposes? And because we have been forgiven much, would you help us to extend the same forgiveness to those who have wronged and sinned against us. As a church, we continue to pray for our members, for those who are going through difficult times. We lift up to you Jonathan Park, whose father was recently diagnosed with cancer. Would you strengthen his faith through this trial, that the fruit of your life in him would be evident and an encouragement to all who know him. We pray for a peace and comfort that surpasses all understanding that is not based on circumstances in this life, but is firmly grounded in the cross and resurrection of Christ. We pray for those who are living in unrepentant sin, including former members who have been disciplined out of the church. Would you awaken their souls to see the deceitful nature of sin and its destructive end? Would you humble them, turn their heart to you so that they might be reconciled to you this day? We pray also for those who have not been with us for an extended period of time, for whatever reason, Lord. Would you not only be sustaining their faith, but growing their faith as we long to see them back in our midst. We also pray, as we were reminded this morning, for our children and for their salvation. We are reminded that they are also part of your story. And would they observe in us as parents, and as members of this body, a faith that is real and tested, that the gospel would be made visible to them through the church, which is the household of God. And we pray that they would one day join us in living lives of eternal worship to you, our Savior and our King. We pray for unsaved family members, parents and siblings of those amongst us. We pray for co-workers, 
fellow students and roommates. We pray for our local, state, and national government officials. We acknowledge that you are sovereign over salvation, but that you use the prayers and lives of your saints to bring about your will. May that compel us as a church, rather than discourage us, to pray for the salvation of all men according to your will and to proclaim your truth with love and grace. Finally, as we prepare to hear the preaching of your word, we pray for your spirit. Lord, prepare our hearts to receive your truth for what it is, the word of life. Help us to recognize its supreme authority, sufficiency, and necessity in our lives. And would you reveal more of yourself to us this day. And help us to respond to your word through trust and obedience, faith and repentance. And may any who is here this morning who does not know the hope of the resurrection be drawn to you to the praise of your glory. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everyone, children, church family, Peter and the praise team, just for the opportunity to celebrate on Resurrection Sunday that, indeed, Christ is our hope, and not just in life, but in death as well. So, what a joy this day to celebrate that Christ, indeed, is alive. I hope You all who are joining us this morning will have a chance to uh, join us for lunch afterwards as we celebrate Christ's Lordship and His presence in our hearts and in our lives. I just want to draw your attention to uh, a couple of things. We celebrate Christ, the risen Lord, and we celebrate His life in ours because He gave His life on the cross. And so as a small sort of symbol of that, This afternoon, Um, Ryan is going to go around from table to table, and we have a few gifts for you. Um, One of them is In the Year of Our Lord by Sinclair Ferguson, Reflections on 20 Centuries of Church History. This is going to be for our book club this summer. So by all means, if you don't get one, whether you're a member or not, please reach out to Ryan. He's going to go table to table afterwards. But this is to help us, brothers and sisters, understand where we stand in church history. We are not alone. We stand together with the saints and those who have died and gone before us and given their lives because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then um, families. If you have children, one per household, we have the radical book for kids and dads. This is for you so that you can read through it and learn and share the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ with your children. And I believe you'll find that as an encouragement for you and your family. Well, I want to thank you all for joining us this Easter and Resurrection Sunday. And I hope that this indeed is a blessed Resurrection Day. And as we gather together this morning for Easter Sunday, it's worth asking, what are we celebrating? What exactly are we celebrating? Well, you've heard quite a bit, haven't you, already? And Let's see if my uh, AV team can help me get to my first slide. Okay. What we're celebrating, brothers and sisters, as we gather together Easter Sunday is, as we've said, 
not the Easter rabbit, though I love chocolate Easter rabbits, and not Easter eggs, and you are all invited to give me dark chocolate Easter eggs. I love them dearly, and, and that's great. But we're here, we're gathered here this morning, as you've heard, to celebrate, because we lose sight of it with that name Easter. Very specifically, we're gathered to celebrate the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And what do we mean by that, the resurrection? We're referring to the Lord God's raising the crucified Jesus of Nazareth from the dead to a completely new life. And for those who follow him, a completely new beginning. And allegedly, this is what Christians have been celebrating for the last 2,000 years. Not just at Easter, And not just on Sunday, the Lord's Day. And incidentally, that's one of the reasons we don't celebrate in the New Covenant, the Sabbath on a Saturday. We celebrate Sunday, the day that Jesus rose again. Every Sunday is the celebration of the Son's Day of the resurrection of the Lord. But allegedly, we celebrate this, brothers and sisters, if we are indeed children of God, we celebrate this every minute and every moment of our lives. That Jesus by the almighty word and power of God, is not dead and gone. He is alive and he is very much present in our lives, in our homes, our marriages, in our church. And this begs the question, brothers and sisters, what difference does the resurrection make in your life? And that's a question I'd like to address this morning. What difference does the resurrection make in your life? What difference does it make in your marriage? What difference does it make in your work or your education or your schooling? What difference does it make in the ministries and the service we give? Whether it be at church or where no one sees, what difference does the resurrection make in our worship? Well, brothers and sisters, if you're anything like me, That's a hard question sometimes to answer depending on how your day is going. And sometimes it can be hard to see what difference the resurrection makes, especially when life is hard. Especially in a year like this, when there has been so much darkness and death and loss. Especially when things are not turning out the way we had hoped or expected. Especially when there is heartbreak and sorrow and suffering and pain. It's especially at those moments where what we struggle with, if we're honest, whether you're a believer or not, is, am I here alone? Has God abandoned me? Am I left to my own device to figure this out? We also have to admit, and I will too, that sometimes we can be so busy, brothers and sisters, with the worries and hurts of this world, which are very real indeed. Sometimes we can be so busy with the worries and hurts of this world that we frequently can live as if Jesus does not exist, that he is either dead or he is not real. And as we come to God's word God graciously shows us that we are not alone in these struggles. In fact, the testimony of all four Gospels is that all, not some, all of Jesus' disciples, and these are men who had left everything to follow Jesus and to follow Him as Lord. These are men who were taught by the best pastor and shepherd this world has ever seen. They were taught by Jesus. 
And these were men who had performed miracles in Jesus' name. And yet, after he had been crucified, all of Jesus' disciples struggled to believe that he was alive and that he was real. And as we come to the end of Luke's gospel, God begins to show us why. And this brings us, I think, I can sort out my AV situation here, to our first point this morning. Like the cross, the resurrection is the incomprehensible, the unbelievable, and the extraordinary work of God. Like the cross, the resurrection is the incomprehensible, the unbelievable, the extraordinary work of God. Brothers and sisters, it's easy for us to treat things that we can't understand or are huge or beyond us. It's easy for us to treat these things as, as a myth and just sort of move on in our daily lives. In fact, this is what the disciples did. They couldn't handle the crucifixion, so they locked themselves in a room where they got out of town, and they just kept on keeping on and doing their thing. And many times we do that in our lives, our work. When things are hard or difficult in our lives, the easiest thing for us to do is just keep on keeping on and to pretend that these things don't exist. In fact, it... Reminds me a little bit of my first year in medical school. On occasion, they would bring in hospital clinicians or members of the hospital staff to share with us some of the challenges that would come in the hospital. And I will be honest with you and confess, on occasion, those would be snooze fests for many of us in the first year of medical school. Why? Many times it would be, this is a joke. Why are we wasting our time? Many times it was, let me read what I have to study for my exam because I've got an exam coming up. What do I want to worry about? And in part, that's because in first-year medical school, our world consisted of textbooks and cadavers. And living patients was like science fiction to us. It was far remote. And we had more pressing concerns in that first year. It was just about survival and reading through all these textbooks and learning neuroanatomy and getting through your exam so you could get to the next step. And yet the fact that some of us fell asleep and the fact that some of us thought it was a joke and the fact that some of us thought it was a waste of time did not change that what these hospital clinicians were coming in and telling us about the hospital and living patients, it didn't change that what those people were saying was true. And just because we didn't understand or just because we fell asleep did not mean what was being said was relevant or would one day have an impact in our lives. In other words, sometimes we struggle with the resurrection, brothers and sisters, and the crucifixion because it's way above our pay grade. It's beyond us and beyond our understanding. And if we say otherwise, brothers and sisters, it's a little bit of a lie. And as we come to the Word of God at the end of Luke's Gospel, Luke shows us that something similar is going on with the disciples. And the problem isn't with Jesus. The problem is with the disciples. Jesus' disciples don't have a clue what Jesus' cross and his resurrection are all about. And brothers and sisters, they were taught by the best. 
If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Luke 24. And we're going to start in verse 33. But I'll give you a little bit of context of what's happening here as we come to Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel is the third of four divinely inspired gospels in our Bible. And they share with us, these Gospels, eyewitness accounts of the earthly life and ministry of Jesus of Nazareth. And they all veer towards and they all culminate with the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's where all these Gospels go. And as we come to Luke 24, which is the end of Luke's Gospel, Jesus has been put on trial by the Sanhedrin for blasphemy. That's essentially saying he's equivalent to or equal with God. And Jesus has been condemned and crucified by Pontius Pilate. And he's been condemned and crucified by Rome for treason and sedition. And his death has been officially verified by the Roman military. And his body has been buried and sealed in a stone tomb under the watchful eye of the temple guard. But on the third day, Early Sunday morning, Jesus' disciples, beginning with the two Marys and then Peter, they discover that the stone that has been sealed has been rolled away. Jesus' tomb is empty. And later that same day, a very real and a very alive Jesus appears and ministers to two disciples. A man named Cleopas and another disciple, St. Clair Ferguson, suggests that perhaps this is his wife. And these two disciples, rather than staying with the rest of the disciples and the eleven, they're cutting out of town and heading out of town. And they're heading towards a village called Emmaus. And on this road to Emmaus, Jesus appears to them. And he ministers to them and he speaks to them. And he breaks bread with them. And as he breaks bread with them, they become aware that this is is in fact... Jesus of Nazareth, who they had witnessed being crucified, dead and buried. And it's this realization for these two disciples that suddenly results in a 180. And they turn from Emmaus and they head directly back to Jerusalem that same day, Easter Sunday, to tell the disciples the unbelievable truth that the Lord has risen indeed. And that brings us to Luke 24, verse 33. And I'll read through verse 49. And they, and that's Cleopas and the other disciple, rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven, and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. And then they told what had happened on the road and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And as they were talking about these things, Jesus himself stood among them. And he said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and frightened, and they thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? 
They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer, and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things, and behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. Brothers and sisters, what you just heard, what we just read, these God-breathed words, they are also the overwhelming and unanimous eyewitness testimony of over 500 people, the Apostle Paul tells us, including Jesus' 11 disciples, every apostle, every New Testament writer, including James, the brother of Jesus, and the Apostle Paul. All of them. The overwhelming eyewitness testimony is that after Jesus had been crucified, dead, and verified to be buried, Jesus appeared very much alive, physically, personally, supernaturally. And he ministered to them, and he did so not just to fly by, he did so repeatedly over a period of 40 days. After his crucifixion. But what's interesting to note. And quite contrary to a group of people. Who are getting together and fabricating a lie. Is the unanimous testimony of all Jesus disciples. That they confessed. And that was written down. In all of the gospels is that in spite of Jesus personally and physically being present among them, all of the disciples were incapable and unwilling to believe that Jesus was real, that he was true, and that he was alive. Why? Because this was the extraordinary, the incomprehensible, and the unbelievable work of God, not man. And so even as Jesus stands among the disciples, those who had been with him for three years, and even as he speaks to them in verse 37 and explains what's going on, they think they are seeing a ghost or a spirit. They think Jesus is still dead, that something from the spirit realm has come back to visit them. And even after Jesus commands them to see and touch his hands and his feet to verify that he is not a ghost, Verse 41 says, they still disbelieved for joy. And Luke is intentional in using that phrase, that term, disbelieved. The opposite of faith and belief. They thought this is too good to be true. And they can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus or his word are real. Brothers and sisters, this is called denial. This is called denial. And this is not just the response of Jesus' disciples. This is the response of all men 
to the word and work of God. And this is the response, brothers and sisters, quite frankly, if we're honest, with you and I. In spite of the overwhelming testimony of a multitude of reliable witnesses, in spite of the conviction of men who don't even believe that Jesus is God, who claim that he is a prophet, and yet look back at the early manuscripts and say, within months of Jesus' resurrection, in the earliest sources, within months of his crucifixion, all the disciples unanimously believed that Jesus, in fact, had risen from the dead. In spite of this, we would rather believe in ghosts and aliens. From the pyramids to the sci-fi channel to the space program, we would rather believe in UFOs. We would rather believe in the paranormal. We would rather invest billions of dollars looking for water on the moon or life on Mars. We would rather spend our lives and our time and our money in a technology pursuing these things rather than believing in the word and work of God. To bring it home a little bit closer, if you have the opportunity, and I've said this before, to go door-to-door evangelism and just knock on the door and just knock on the doors in the neighborhood, and you go and you ask people, after you die, what's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you? I think you'll find the vast majority of Americans will say they believe they're going to heaven. Somewhere up above, to play a harp on a moon somewhere. And then you you can ask them why. And obviously I've done this, but some of you have done it too. You go and the overwhelming belief is, well, after I die, I'm going to go someplace good. I'm going to go to heaven. Why? Because I've lived a better life. I, I haven't lived a bad life. I haven't cheated on my taxes. I haven't murdered anybody. I haven't gone out and, and beat up on Asians out there. I've lived a good life. There's this conviction without any shred of evidence, that somehow after we die, we're going to go to a good place because somehow I'm better than the neighbor who lives next door. And it just shows, brothers and sisters, how desperate we are willing to believe anything and everything but the Word of God. And when it comes to the resurrection, no one, not even the disciples, are willing to believe that Jesus is truly alive. And in this resurrection encounter, Jesus shows the disciples and us why. And this brings us to our second point for this morning. Like the cross, Jesus' resurrection confronts our sin, our death, and our unbelief in God's word. Like the cross, Jesus' resurrection confronts our sin, our death, our unbelief in God's word. Whether you are rich or poor, whether you are educated or uneducated, whether you are religious or agnostic, there are three inevitables, brothers and sisters. There are three inevitables in this life that no man can control or fix or escape. And those three inevitables are sin, death, and God's word. Sin, death, and God's word. Those are three things that you can't run from. Those are three things that you cannot fix. And those are three things that you can lie about and fabricate, but you cannot change. And they are three inevitables in our lives that expose what we really are. 
whether you're Steve Jobs or a homeless person on the street, sin, death, and God's word show that we are all fallible. They show that we are all fragile. They show that we are all finite. And whether we founded a great company or were shaken for change on the street, they show that sooner or later from dust we were created and to dust we'll return. And sadly, our typical response to sin and death and God's word is not that different from Adam and Eve in the garden. And it's not that dissimilar from the disciples at Jesus' crucifixion. In fear and unbelief, we try to run and hide and deny all three. This is what happens with the disciples at the crucifixion. I'll be with you, Jesus. I'll stand beside you. I'll step up. Nothing's going to separate us. And then sure enough, one by one, until finally Peter, the last one, they abandoned Jesus. I think of all of us. How horrified were we when we saw that video clip of that Asian woman on the way to church getting beaten up by a man and the security guard standing there and going and closing the door. Disgusted. I hope you were. I was. And yet... Brothers and sisters, how would you or I react if we thought our life was in danger? More often than not, when we personally are being threatened, we run, we hide, and we close the door. And that's exactly what the disciples did as they hovered after Jesus' death in a room and Cleopas and probably his wife head out of town and leave. And brothers and sisters, this is how we deal with anything that we cannot control or that we are afraid of or that is bigger than ourselves. We run, we hide, or we deny until we can't run and we can't hide and we can't deny any longer. And we look to things like entertainment and fitness and vitamins and work and church and all of these different things we use to run and hide from God and to make ourselves feel better and to think that death is not so near, I'm not that bad of a sinner, and God's word, maybe it isn't true or it applies to all of you all, but it doesn't apply to me because I serve in the children's ministry or I sit in the pulpit. But brothers and sisters, this is why God in love sent his son to die on the cross and raised him from the dead. Because we were running, brothers and sisters, and we couldn't fix the problem for ourselves and we were unwilling to ask him for help. So in love, God sent his son to come in person to help those who could not help themselves. And he did so because unlike us, Jesus is greater than our sin, our death, and our unbelief in God's word. And this is exactly what dying, unbelieving sinners so desperately need. Brothers and sisters, if you ever have the opportunity to minister and be close to someone who is dying... And I say this not to be grim, but we can't appreciate life, brothers and sisters, until we begin to appreciate what death is. If you've ever had that opportunity to be close to someone, it's abundantly evident that our ability to help is very limited. 
And that what this person needs as they suffer is not more vitamins, not a better iOS system, not a better degree or a career, or even a better 401k plan. We need the word and we need the work and we need the life of someone who is greater than our sin, our death, and our unbelief. And this, brothers and sisters, is what the cross and the resurrection are all about. It's about God doing through his son what we cannot. It's about Christ through his death and resurrection making things right with God. I've told this to you before. I recall showing up in South Africa to minister to South Africans who were dying of HIV in the townships. And as I walked out, the care worker who was there took one look at me and said, don't be another American doctor who's just here throwing pills at these people. The water's not clean. They're not able to take them. They're able to take a handful and in a few days you're going to be gone and they're going to be back to the life that they were living. What they needed, brothers and sisters, was a Savior and a Lord who was greater than sin and death and unbelief, who could come and change their hearts and lives and give them a completely new life and new beginning that would carry them through this life and into the next life and bring them to the life and love of God. Not by accident, brothers and sisters, the first word the risen Lord says to his disciples as he supernaturally appears out of nowhere and personally stands among them is shalom, peace to you. And their response, which is anything but peaceful, is most revealing. In verse 37 it says, but they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit or a ghost. So in their fear they would rather believe a fiction and these are the disciples than the reality of God's word. And then in verse 38, Jesus, like his father, with a simple question, exposes why they are responding the way they are responding. He says to them, why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your hearts? Why are you troubled and why do doubts arise in your hearts? And the word for troubled that Luke uses here is the idea of a storm. It's the idea of a sea that is in turmoil with huge waves that's going back and forth. It's the idea, what's suggested here, it's a metaphor for the idea of like a panic attack. And the word for doubt that Luke uses is this word that suggests that there is a conflict going on. That there's a division going on in their hearts and minds. There's a conflict between what they see and what they believe. That, quite frankly, many times is the source of many of our panic attacks. The earth isn't coming to, the, to an end. Things are not falling apart. But somehow our hearts are beating 200 miles an hour because something inside us tells us that something is very wrong here. There's a conflict between what the disciples see and what they believe. They see that Jesus is alive. What do they believe? That Jesus has been crucified. He is killed. And everything that they'd hoped for and dreamed about has come to an end. No longer. They believe that God has abandoned them. And that's why they're holed up in that room. Brothers and sisters, that's not just the disciples. Not infrequently, if we're honest, that can be us too. 
this conflict with what we read in God's word, what we are told is true, that Christ is alive, that we have every reason to rejoice. And yet we've lost a loved one. We've lost a job. Things are hard. There's physical pain. There's real sorrow in our lives. And the propensity of our hearts, when things don't go the way we expected or hoped and planned, is that overwhelming sense that God has abandoned us, we're alone, we're in this by ourselves, even though that is the complete opposite of what God's word tells us, and that is the opposite of what the cross stands for, and it is the opposite of what the resurrection is all about. And the good news of God's word is that Jesus does not abandon his disciples to their fears and their unbelief. Instead, he comes and gives what we so desperately need in our darkness. He gives us the light of his truth. Jesus gives himself. And I want you to notice this, brothers and sisters. What is the remedy for those who are suffering? What is the remedy for this world that is torn apart by hatred and sin? It is not bigger grant money. It's sweet that President Biden has said that he will address all this racism towards Asian Americans. It's sweet that flags are put down at half-mast. It's sweet that a budget is going to be put for this. But what ultimately comes of it? That there's a committee of people who gather together to look into racism against Asians. It's not going to bring those eight people who were shot back to life, brothers and sisters. It's not going to comfort or encourage or strengthen those who were left behind to get through the lives that they've been left with. Lives in a world that is filled with sin. Lives that are filled in a world that is filled with tragedy and sorrow. Brothers and sisters, what the world needs, what these people need, what we need, is a risen Lord who is greater than our sin, our death, our unbelief. A risen Lord who is able to give us a completely new life, a new beginning. Not in the things of this world. Not in a new job or career, because that's not going to do anything for those people. Not with greater representation for Asians in the Senate or the Congress. We need a Savior and a Lord who can redeem what is broken in our lives. And that's exactly what Jesus does with the disciples. He gives them himself. And so in verse 39, he says to them, See my hands and my feet that it is I myself. Touch me and see, for a spirit does not have flesh and bones, as you see that I have. Have you anything to eat? And they gave him a piece of broiled fish, verse 43, and he took it and he ate before them. What's Jesus doing here? He's taking the resurrection and that he is a supernatural new life, a new beginning, that he has risen from the grave, and he's sticking it in their face. He's confronting their sin and their death and their unbelief and their mortality face on. And what's he confronting them with? Himself. And then in verse 44, he continues to confront their fear and unbelief with his word. He says, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. Well, clearly they didn't believe his words when he spoke to them while he was still with them. 
I, I no longer get upset when people say they don't understand, they didn't hear, or they ignored what I said, or you were right, or whatever. It doesn't matter. We can talk till we're blue in the face. The issue is the heart of the person who receives it. These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you. What the disciples are experiencing firsthand, what they can't understand, what they refuse to deal with, what they refuse to believe, are Jesus' words, which he spoke to them before his crucifixion. And what were they? Verse 44b, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. And here Jesus gives his disciples the key to understanding everything that's going on, including his death and resurrection. It's the testimony of God's word, brothers and sisters. It's the testimony of God's word that Jesus is Lord of all. They didn't believe it. They didn't believe it when he was in the boat and he stilled the waters. They didn't believe it when he fed the 5,000. They didn't believe it when he raised someone from the dead. This is the testimony of God's word, that Jesus is Lord of all. And that nothing, not sin, not death, not man, can stop Jesus from keeping all of God's word. That the God of the Bible is faithful and true. He is the creator and Lord of all. And he created all things by his word. And he will always keep his word. And not sin nor death nor your unbelief or mine is going to stop God from keeping his word. All of which, the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, all of them, simply point an unbelieving sinner to a new life, and a new fellowship, and a new creation. Not in our fitness, our work, or our degrees, but in Christ alone, by way of the cross. That's the law, that's the prophets, that's all of it, brothers and sisters. You go and you read the Psalms over and over and over again, and what do they tell us? The steadfast love of the Lord endures forever. Salvation is from the Lord. Don't look for salvation in the war horse. Or in a king's mighty army, that life and salvation are a precious gift of the Lord. That our sin is a rejection of God's word, a refusal to believe that he is the Lord. And it ultimately leads us and separates us from the love and life of God. It's the law and the prophets. That's the Psalms. And yet God is gracious and he calls sinners to repentance. But he does so, brothers and sisters, by way of the cross and by way of the resurrection. And he does so by way of the cross where the full bank account of God's precious life and love were given as a sacrifice and a substitute to pay the debt and penalty of our sin, our death, and our unbelief. Why did Jesus do that? So that in love and faith, rather than in fear and hate, We might no longer live in our sin and death and unbelief. But instead, we might live with Jesus. We might live like Jesus. And we might live for Jesus in his newness of life. Brothers and sisters, that's 
what Scripture is pointing to. This is what the law and the prophets and the Psalms are all about. And this is what the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is all about. And this is why, brothers and sisters, the disciples and you and I cannot and will not believe that it is true. It's too much for us. It's beyond our pay grade. We'd rather just go to work and get on with life. And yet what we so desperately need, our Lord and Savior gives. And we see he gives it to the disciples. He has come back for them. And he has given them in person his lordship, his word, and his work. And he's given it to them directly, personally and present. Verse 45 says, Then he opened their minds to understand the scripture. The implication here is they couldn't see it. They were blind. And he said to them, thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, on occasion, I'm sure you've been there before and you'll interact with someone who has an amazing life, whether it be an amazing marriage or amazing family, and they come to you and they complain because they're having a hard day. And you feel like slapping them on the back of the head. Maybe you're not like me. But you feel like slapping them on the back of the head and said, you don't know how good you have it. Can't you see that the Lord has blessed you with A, B, C, D, and E? I remember in seminary, A young brother was struggling because he got dumped by his girlfriend. And it was like the end of the world, catastrophic. And I confess, I felt like slapping him on the back of the head. And saying, brother, do you understand how much the Lord has blessed you? Do you understand what people are struggling with, believers in places like Myanmar or China or in the Middle East? And something like this has become the end of your world and the darkness and cloud. It's not good and it's not right. Would you wake up and see what's there? And yet try as I might, my words don't do anything. But brothers and sisters, that's the beauty of what Jesus is doing for the disciples. He doesn't slap us on the back of the head. He steps into our lives. He loves us. He exposes our hearts and shows us that the troubles in our hearts are not from our circumstances or our situation. They're coming from our unbelief that we don't believe God's promises and his word is true. But then, brothers and sisters, he opens our minds by the power of his spirit to show us that despite what everybody is saying, his word is indeed true and God keeps his promises in his time and in his way. And he brings a hope and joy in life and in death, brothers and sisters. That is greater than the circumstances or the ugliness of the world. Why? Because it comes from him and his life in ours. A life that has triumphed over the grave and sin and death and is very much alive. Brothers and sisters, it's the gift of himself. And I emphasize this a little bit, brothers and sisters, because I hope many of you will become biblical counselors. 
What you're seeing, brothers and sisters, is biblical counseling. This is what Jesus does. He comes and gives what torn and broken and pathetic people so desperately need. He gives him, he gives them, excuse me, the crucified and risen Lord. And this brings us to our final point for this morning. The cross and the resurrection lead to repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. The cross and the resurrection lead to repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name. As Jesus opens his disciples' minds to understand the scripture. As he shows them what it's all about. I want you to notice this. He does not stop with the crucifixion and the resurrection. He does not stop with the crucifixion and the resurrection. Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. Brothers and sisters, Jesus did not die on the cross and he did not rise from the grave for himself. He didn't die on the cross and rise from the grave for a good story to be told at church retreats. He died and he rose again for sinners like you and I. And he died and he rose again so that repentance for the forgiveness of sins might be proclaimed in his name to sinners of every color and every race and every tongue. He died and rose again so that we might turn from our sin and our death and our unbelief and so that we might place our faith and our lives entirely in the crucified and risen Lord. He died and rose again so that we might have a new beginning and a new life, not in the things of this world, brothers and sisters, but in his new life. And when Jesus says, thus it is written, he's showing the disciples and us, not only his cross and his resurrection, but the proclamation in his name of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All three of these, all three of these, are the extraordinary work of God. They are the extraordinary work of God's word, and you cannot separate them. Now, I highlight this because churches in this day and age, we're all excited about going out and fixing the world. We're all excited about social justice. We're all excited about feeding the poor. We're all excited about fixing the wrongs out there and starting a movement. Sometimes we can be all about door-to-door evangelism and outreach. But brothers and sisters, what Jesus shows us here, without his crucifixion, without his resurrection, without Jesus, there is no repentance for the forgiveness of sins. There is no new life. There is no turning from the things of this world. It doesn't work. It's not part of it. All three of them are together. And what makes this all tick, brothers and sisters, is that Jesus is Lord of all. And I've talked to the elders about this. This is for our church. Yes, you can take a break. I love our MVP, our mission, our vision, our passion. 
It's to proclaim and be obedient to this final portion, to proclaim repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Christ's name, that there's an authority that can remove sin and draw people close to the Lord. But brothers and sisters, unless you read our big doctrinal statement, it's easy to forget that it's all built, brothers and sisters, on a Lord and Savior who did not just die for our sins. He is very much alive and he is very present in the lives of his disciples. And as Jesus shares this with the disciples, he shows that he is Lord of the past, his crucifixion, the present, his resurrection, as he speaks to them on that day. And he is Lord of the future as well. Repentance in his name for the forgiveness of sins to all the nations. And in this way, Jesus shows his disciples past, present, and future. Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord, is our only hope, not just in life, but in death as well. And brothers and sisters, this brings us to this final question. What difference does the resurrection make in your life? For the disciples who were there that day, who denied that Jesus was alive, who did not believe his words, who rejected what Jesus had to say and couldn't even bring themselves to believe when Jesus was there, for those who abandoned him when he went to the cross. Jesus' presence in their life did indeed bring them to repentance. Their lives were changed. The power of the Holy Spirit changed their lives. And these would become men whose lives were a complete 180. They would go on to give their lives to proclaim that Jesus is alive. And that repentance for the forgiveness of sins is available in his name. Brothers and sisters, there are a few events in our lives that will change everything. And this year we've lived through it with COVID-19. An event that changed our world. And on a personal level... If you've ever lost a loved one, these are events that change your life, where your life is never the same before and after. But most of these things are things that change our life in a very dark way. But for the disciples, and for the Apostle Paul, and for James, Jesus' brother, the resurrection changed their life in a radically wonderful way. It didn't mean, brothers and sisters, that they would never have sorrow or suffering in their life again. It didn't mean that they didn't have hard days. It didn't mean that their lives materially were worse off than it was before they followed Jesus. The difference was, brothers and sisters, is that they were able to overcome those things with joy and hope. And instead of withdrawing and running and hiding, they were able to give their lives and give love and give grace and give truth and give mercy, even to those who treated them poorly. Why? Because they were no longer controlled by sin and fear and death and unbelief. They were testimonies of the gospel made visible that in them and through them, was the life of the risen Lord. And one day, they would die like Jesus. But that was not the end. Because one day, they will rise again. 
and they will be restored. Why? Because Jesus himself is the risen Lord of all. Greater than sin, greater than death, greater than unbelief. And those who have repented and placed their faith in him will one day see him and be like him and be raised exactly like him to a newness of life. A newness of life that begins here and now. Brothers and sisters, are you witnesses of these things? Or are you those who need to come in repentance and find the remedy that is only found in Jesus Christ, the crucified and risen Lord? Let's close in prayer. Lord Jesus, we just thank you that you did not abandon us to ourselves. We thank you that you are here present with us. And one day we will see you in the flesh, alive, present, physical. And in the meantime, Lord Jesus, we understand that you are, whether we feel it or not, whether we deal with suffering or sorrow, you are present and that you are fulfilling all things according to your word. And we thank you for this. Lord Jesus, would your resurrection change our lives in the same way your resurrection changed the lives of your disciples. In your name we pray. Amen. This morning we have the opportunity to celebrate the Lord's table together. It's the first of the